Hello and welcome to the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast by Pallium Canada for January 2022, where our panel of palliative care specialists explore and discuss the latest peer-reviewed palliative care literature. Our hosts, Dr. Jose Pereira and Dr. Leonie Herx, are joined by their special guests, Dr. Jean Matthews and Dr. Ainaran Sinaraja. If you'd like to access accompanying slides and links to the articles discussed in today's podcast, visit the link in the episode notes. With no further ado, it's time for the Journal Watch. Hello and welcome to the very first inaugural webinar and accompanying podcast show of Pallium Canada's ECHO Journal Watch program brought to you through a partnership between Pallium Canada and the divisions of Palliative Care at Queen's University in Kingston and McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Pallium Canada is a non-profit organization founded in 2000 with the mission to improve primary palliative care capacity across the country. I am Dr. Jose Pereira, and I'm Professor and Director of the Division of Palliative Care in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University, and also Co-Founder and Scientific Officer of Pallium Canada. And here, sitting virtually alongside me, is my wonderful co-host, Dr. Leonie Herx. Leonie. Hi, Leonie Herx. I'm the Division Chair and Associate Professor in Palliative Medicine at Queen's University. It's great to be here today. So what is the Journal Watch program? So it's a regular series of webinars and accompanying podcasts where teams from our academic divisions, faculty of our academic divisions of palliative care, um, share with you papers from peer-reviewed journals that caught our attention. Why do we do it? To help us all stay up to date with the latest and, and hopefully also the best. If you are a clinician, an educator, a manager, or a policymaker, or anyone else for that matter, with an interest uh, or role in palliative care and advancing palliative care or organizing palliative care, then we hope that this is going to be helpful for you. Now, how do we do this? Our project team of busy beavers and scholarly owls continually scan about 15 palliative care journals and also some journals that are not specifically dedicated to palliative care, but will occasionally have palliative care content or articles. So we scan them looking for interesting papers, papers that we think will change how we think or what we do around either clinical care, education, quality improvement, health services organization, and also policymaking. The articles are identified by our faculty, a team of contributors. We've all been assigned various journals. Some of us are working in teams, others a bit more individually, and we scan the literature and then identify ones that catch our attention and bring it to the editorial team, which is led by Leonie and myself. And for every edition, we have two guests that help us, and the guests come from our team of contributors and faculty. The articles are selected based on the potential to, to change or confirm practice or thinking. The articles of interest are summarized by our contributors. We then decide between us which ones we think are the ones that we should really showcase and that we think you will love as much as we did. We are hoping at least for 2022 to come out with an episode every two months. Episodes will be in the form of webinars, followed by a podcast of that webinar about a month later, and they will be made available on the Pallium Canada Echo website 
www.echopalliative.com. So how will we do this today? Uh, well, first of all, we are hoping it's going to be fun and we're hoping it's going to be chatty. This is where we think evidence and innovation, insights and skepticism, and hopefully lots of fun, have a home. And the format combines some short summaries and presentations followed by a chat between our panel, the, the four of us. It's important to note that this is not a journal club. This is a journal watch. And what's the difference, you may be asking? Well, in a journal watch, we will not be undertaking in-depth critical appraisals of each of the articles. The whole goal is simply to bring those that we find interesting as faculty to your attention. Uh, we've tried to select those that we think are, uh, have merit and are solid in terms of their methods used and the points made and the way they're written. But you as a listener need to make the final call. And you as a listener as well need to decide whether the findings or the content is relevant and applicable to your practices. We will be presenting five articles and discussing five. And then at the end, we'll also give you a list of honorable mentions. And these were articles that we thought were very interesting, but sadly did not have enough time to present them all. They will also be linked in the uh, website. The session is being recorded and will be emailed to registrants within a week. And as I said previously, followed hopefully within about a month of the podcast. Now, having introduced ourselves, now we'll let them introduce themselves, our uh, guests for today. We're also members of our faculty, and both of them are from Queen's University. Jean, over to you. Thanks, Jose. Uh, I'm Jean uh, Matthews. I'm a palliative care physician from India and currently an assistant professor in the Division of Palliative Medicine at uh, Queen's University, and I'm uh, excited to be here. Thank you. This is Sangaran Sinaraja. I am a palliative care physician now in Oshawa, uh, Ontario. Uh, I'm an associate professor as well with the Queen's University under the Division of Pattern Medicine. Also excited to be here. Excellent. Thank you. Um, something very important I forgot to mention earlier, and that is this project is supported by a financial contribution from Health Canada. So without further ado, let's go to the feature articles. I think we have a fascinating slate and may I say rather eclectic collection of featured articles in this webinar and podcast, as you'll see a wide scope of topics featuring a broad spectrum of study methods and approaches um, from the use of large population databases to a randomized controlled trial and an excellent qualitative exploration and from folks around the world and also several journals, as you will see. Let's take a look at them and let's look at the list just as an appetizer before we dig into each one of them in detail. There is something about palliative sedation. There's something on the views of registered dietitians and speech language pathologists. An important paper highlighting kind of care related to immigrants, and that's a large study from Ontario. We looked at an important topic around who opens up goals of care conversations. In the past, it's always been seemingly the realm of a physician, but thankfully that's being challenged and this paper challenges it. And then we'll end with a study on a double-blinded placebo-controlled randomized trial looking at the role of metazapine in cancer-associated um, anorexia and cachexia. Right, so in the first article, which I've been asked to present, was selected by our team of contributors from the Brampton Hospital and those doctors, Karim Amanji, Aveksha Ellery, Humira said, and yours truly, 
The article reports a study undertaken by a large group of researchers from several Japanese centers. The study was led by Dr. Zimai and Mori, and many of the authors have published quite extensively on the topic of palliative sedation, including some really seminal papers that many of us actually refer to. The study is entitled Efficacy of Proportional Sedation and Deep Sedation Defined by Sedation Protocols, a multi-centered prospective observational comparative study, and was published in the December 2021 issue of the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management. Now, let's take a look at some of the key elements of the study, looking at the abstract. So the purpose of the study was to investigate the efficacy of two types of palliative sedation, and they refer to these two types as proportional and deep sedation. And I'll come back to that, because I've been used to in my practice to call proportional light sedation. They call it proportional sedation. It's a, as I said before, multi-center study involving over 20 pad of care units across Japan. So quite an amazing study just in terms of the logistics of making this happen. They analyzed the data of those patients who had received a continuous infusion of midazolam for the purpose of pad of sedation as defined by these two protocols, proportional and deep. And they used a sedation protocol and one of the things I really enjoyed about this paper was that it actually describes the sedation protocols and describes them very clearly and well, so it's easy to follow them. The primary endpoint, which actually is an endpoint that they use in their practice because they use that endpoint to actually titrate and modify the dose. Primary endpoint was goal achievement at four hours in the case of proportional sedation, which they define as lighter level of sedation. The goal was symptom relief as identified using the integrated palliative care outcome scale. So the patients had to be able to provide their input and also absence of agitation or deep sedation as assessed by the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale. In the case of deep sedation, their primary endpoint was achievement of deep sedation as measured by the REST scale with a score of minus four or less than minus four. The secondary endpoints in the study was deep sedation as a result of proportional sedation, communication capacity, and they use an instrument they call communication capacity scale and adverse events. A total of 81 patients from 14 palliative care units ended up being included in the study and analyzed. And of these, of these 81, 64 of them, the goal from the outset was proportional sedation, in other words, lighter levels of sedation, whereas 17 of the 81, the goal from the start was deep sedation. At four hours, the goal was achieved in 77% of patients with proportional sedation and 88% of patients with deep sedation. Interestingly, deep sedation was required in about 45% of those who started off as being a proportional light sedation. And also very interestingly, communication capacity was maintained in uh, 34% with proportional slash light sedation and 10% actually, interestingly, with deep sedation. They also looked at what they refer to as fatal events or severe adverse effects. And they said they believe that one person may have died from the sedation, but do acknowledge in the discussion that it is difficult to assess whether it is from that or from another medical cause. And they concluded in the study that proportional sedation achieved satisfactory symptom relief while maintaining some patients' consciousness, and deep sedation achieved good symptom relief while the majority of patients uh, lost consciousness. So why did we choose this article? Well, palliative sedation is an important topic in palliative care, and different aspects of it have been reported, described, and debated in the literature. And I think that this adds 
an important piece to that literature. Specifically, there are not many studies that actually looked at objectively the impact of the sedation. And I would also argue that there are not many papers that describe so well the protocols as well. The authors use the term proportional sedation, as I said, to refer to a situation where the initial intent is lighter levels of sedations. And the protocol there calls for starting with a relatively low midazolam dose. So in the protocol, it describes a bolus of 0.5 milligrams to 2 milligrams, followed by a continuous infusion, either intravenously or subcutaneously, of 0.5 milligrams to 2 milligrams per hour. In the deep sedation protocol, they start off with the bolus of also 0.5 to 2 milligrams. And, but then the continuous infusion doses range from 5 to 10 milligrams per hour by continuous infusion. And assessment is done every 15 to 30 minutes. And at every assessment point, there are opportunities for boluses and also increasing the dose of the continuous infusion if required. One of the interesting findings was that the proportional sedation protocol led to unconsciousness or deep sedation in a certain proportion of patients, as I described early, namely 45% of them. On the other hand, not all patients who received deep sedation protocol showed unconsciousness. So three out of seven actually at the principal mark at four hours were still not unconscious, which is the intent but most of them achieve that at 24 hours, often with higher doses through the titration process. I think this article is important that it helps advance the discussion and understanding of definitions and types of palliative sedation and provides some useful protocols. The authors do describe some limitations. And the first is that the protocol is quite flexible, so not always applied exactly the same way for every patient. But I would argue that this is actually a strength because it represents a pragmatic trial that uh, situates itself in the real world and everyday practice. They also indicate that they did not compare the different administration routes, in other words, intravenous versus subcutaneous. So with that, perhaps too long overview of the paper, let me turn over to my co-host, Leone, and our two guests today, Jean and Eingeron. Your thoughts? on the paper and how it connects to your practices. Maybe I'll jump in. Uh, I think it's a, it is a very interesting discussion in light of our Canadian framework for continuous palliative sedation therapy and recommendations from the Canadian Society of Healthcare Physicians that we each follow some sort of guideline for CPST, as I'll use it in abbreviated form. But there's no recommendation around deep sedation versus proportional sedation. And certainly the guidelines that I've reviewed across the country use them interchangeably, at some points, uh, or some specifically use deep sedation, I think in Alberta Health Services one does, but Eingrand can comment on that. And then some like the McMaster one, for example, really talks about proportional sedation. So I think it is an important thing for us to clarify and really develop some recommendations around. It did seem one other thing I noted of interest was that, and you referenced this, Jose, was that in the three out of the seven folks who had deep sedation didn't actually need deep sedation to be comfortable. So at 24 hours, their symptoms were well controlled, but they didn't need the RAS of negative minus four or below to be comfortable. So there seems to be a certain proportion of people that probably could do well with proportional sedation. So I certainly would favor the use of proportional sedation, which of course becomes deep sedation when needed based on symptom management. That's interesting you say that because over the years... I've normally done and taught that one usually starts with the lowest dose possible and the lightest level of sedation to achieve the goal of comfort. 
but that in some cases you may need to increase that and end up with deeper sedation. And in very few cases, you have to go from the outset to deep sedation. But in my practice, the word proportional has been more that you don't just indiscriminately apply doses, that it's based on the clinical impact and clinical outcome. Gene, I saw you were Thanks, Jose. I agree with what you said. I think it's not so much a dichotomy because proportional sedation, if a deeper level of sedation is required, falls under proportional sedation. One of the things I found interesting was only 34% of the patients in the proportional sedation arm were able to keep communication. So I found that interesting. I thought it would be a higher number mm. in that arm, although uh, considering that the 45% of that arm actually needed deeper sedation, it might make sense. I was wondering if they mentioned the use of adjuvants. I don't know if they recorded whether antipsychotics or other adjuvants were needed during this protocol. And the other comment I had was the lack of randomization. So uh, that kind of limits our ability to say whether one approach was better than another. Thank you. Yeah, in the paper, it is interesting because they did discuss that in some cases, what you term as an adjuvant was required. And I know from my own practice, um, and in fact, quite a few years back, we published a paper called When Midazolam Fails, myself and some colleagues. And that was because we found that in some patients, midazolam alone was either not effective or in some cases actually causing some paradoxical agitation. And the authors do actually reference a larger study that they did earlier on. And when they talk about adding uh, they mentioned benzodiazepines. In our practice, we would normally turn to something like methotrimeprazine, the old antipsychotic, or small light doses of phenobarbital as, as a second line addition. I don't know what, what you folks do in your practices. Yeah, I, I agree, Jose. I, I think uh, for sure we use uh, nozanan uh, commonly as a kind of second line uh, agent. The other interesting thing about the paper that I forgot to mention was the indications for the um, sedation. So for light, and I'm looking at the paper right here, for the lighter sedation, the most common indication, and also for deep sedation, the most common indications were agitated delirium restlessness, followed by dyspnea, and then smaller numbers, uh, pain. And interestingly, the, for a very small number, psychoexistential suffering. And that can be a topic for another day, the whole debate around whether that qualifies. And I, th I think by and large people say it does, but with some caveats. Yoni, I think you're going to say one last word around this, and then we can move over to Iron. Well, I think I was just going to say that their findings are very similar to our experience, I think, in Canada and the studies we have, uh, that it's it's often agitated delirium and dyspnea as the top two causes for requiring uh, palliative sedation. So very similar to what we experience here. Perfect. Thank you. Right. So for article number two, over to you, Iron, a microphone in your hands now. So I uh, read um, an article in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine uh, that caught my eye. It did a survey of dietitians and speech language pathologists in the U.S. and they purchased and essentially emailed the membership of the U.S. associations of these two um, healthcare professionals. And they emailed them a survey that asked their views on artificial nutrition and hydration. And they also asked them for their views specifically in an end of life scenario. And the scenario was actually um, of a patient who's 89 with advanced dementia. They were non-ambulatory, aphasic, and were quite restless and um, crying out perhaps in pain. And there's a husband, um, there were two kids, and the two kids were worried about their mom uh, starving. 
because they were not eating. And apparently, uh, and, and the patient uh, was Catholic, and they consulted a priest uh, who read the guidelines on the religious um, organization and recommended that they proceed with artificial feeding. And, and so this is a scenario presented to uh, the, the dietitians and the speech language pathologist, and they essentially responded uh, to this survey. And they actually quite quite a large number of um, respondents. So there were 865 dietitians who responded and 312 speech language pathologists uh, to this study. Uh, so quite advanced, uh, quite a lot of people. And uh, and the results uh, caught my attention because uh, for, for in the results, uh, a majority of uh, folks actually uh, said that they, they, they might recommend artificial nutrition hydration. Uh, in, in some s- scenarios, it, it, regardless of what the circumstances, uh, in, in, in a lot of scenarios, it's based on patient wishes, family wishes, uh, in a small number based on organizational uh, um, priorities. Uh, and, and it was only a very small number that said no in all circumstances. Uh, there were some differences around place of employment, religion, and age of respondents. Uh, for example, uh, dietitians and speech-language pathologists that worked in hospices had very, very low rates of recommending uh, artificial nutrition hydration compared to uh, dietitians who worked in, um, in inpatient settings, uh, speech-language pathologists who worked in uh, rehab hospitals. Um, they had higher uh, recommendations around artificial nutrition. And... So in conclusion, the authors recommended, and this is something I would discuss later, uh, that they recommended that obviously there would be more education perhaps needed uh, for dietitians and uh, speech-language pathologists. Because in the article, they do outline the evidence basis around artificial nutrition and hydration at end of life. And that really, the the evidence states that it is not recommended in advanced dementia. Uh, And so perhaps there's a role for education um, in these two disciplines. Uh, interestingly, they also comment uh, and made a point of mentioning that um, that perhaps personal bias was coming into play around uh, the respondents also recommending this for their patients. And, and they comment on whether there is a role for ethics um, uh, teaching um, in this. And then the reason they mentioned this is that they also asked for their for the respondents to comment on what they would choose if they if they were, they were themselves placed in this scenario as a patient, and and they recommended they would also choose artificial nutrition hydrating for themselves. But I you know I'll, I'll slip into discussion, and I would argue that I, I'm not sure that's a that's a ethics um, reason as to why they were recommended, and they're not perhaps you know delineating their personal ethics from uh, what they would recommend for their patient. I think it comes from a place of them not perhaps knowing that artificial nutrition hydration actually has very little role uh, in uh, um, uh, people with advanced dementia. They also wondered and asked about why they would recommend artificial nutrition hydration. And again, the reasons and the answers convey perhaps some of that um, educational needs because a lot of them believed that it would improve nutritional status of the patient, decrease aspiration risk. And and, and again, all of these we know for, uh, for ourselves that that is actually very little evidence. And in fact, in, in, in some people, placement of PEG actually increases aspiration risk as we know. And, and so, um, so all of this um, caught my attention and it led me to also think about in my practice how I should be careful about automatically referring my patients in a non-part-of-care unit 
to dietitians and speech language pathologists. Uh, it, it probably requires me to also have a conversation about what they think about it and figuring out whether there's some uh, conversations we need around education. So uh, perhaps I'll stop there and invite the panelists to, uh, to comment, uh, hear their thoughts on this paper. A fascinating paper, and you summarize it so nicely. I've got a few thoughts, but I'm curious first on any other. Uh, Jose, maybe I can uh, jump in. Um, uh, I, I think this reminded me of the literature on uh, oncologists who, who rotate through palliative care have a higher likelihood of referring early to palliative care. So I, I kind of thought of that literature because I, I wondered if, you know, we looked at the education curriculum of the participants uh, in the survey. Did they have a chance to spend some time in a palliative care unit or hospice setting and get exposed to um, kind of the philosophy of care? Um, and whether, you know, adding some, uh, some part of that in the curriculum uh, might influence um, these practices. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's far For me, what is really interesting was how I think this is another in, in a larger and ever, you know, and in a large and ever-growing body of, of literature showing gaps in uh, understanding and knowledge and skills related to palliative and end-of-life care amongst all professions. And this one highlights the diet, the dietitians and speech language pathologists. A few years ago, quite a few years ago, really. I had a fantastic experience of working closely with this amazing uh, dietitian, a Portuguese dietitian who did a master's degree actually in England, and her name is Isabel Pinto. And Isabel actually published uh, her her thesis was around. She interviewed dietitians across Europe to explore what you know what they thought were the were the, was the role of a dietitian in the palliative care team or providing advice for patients' with palliative care needs and. And the whole, this whole issue of gaps in curricula came up often, and they saw one of their roles as being to educate fellow dietitians and speech-language pathologists on exactly what Eingerin referred to, right, about the limitations in general. There are always some exceptions, but in general, of artificial um, feeding um, in patients with very, very advanced disease. And interestingly, we've just published, actually, in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management Journal just a few days ago, a paper looking at what participants, healthcare professionals across different professions, what their learning experience was with Pallium Canada's LEAP courses. And amongst uh, them were a few uh, in the order of about 60 or 70 dietitians who had participated in the courses. Uh, there were over 4,000 people that participated in the courses. And there was this common theme of, we never knew this. This was fantastic. We now understand a lot more the dynamics so interesting paper. I might just add a small thing. I know we're watching our time, but uh, um, I did think it was quite interesting that there seemed to be a knowledge gap. And so I took a look at the registered dietitians integrated competencies for entrance into practice, as well as their accreditation standards for programming Canada. And in neither one of those documents, there's any reference to end of life care or palliative care needs. So quite a good opportunity and in the context of our new interdisciplinary competency framework for a palliative approach to care that Health Canada and the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer have advanced some opportunities to expanding those uh, competencies to some other disciplines. So great opportunity for Hellium to do some more work. Absolutely. And one final thing, and maybe Leone can help me on this one as well, is I found it interesting the context that they provided in terms of the Catholic Church and the Catholic doctrine, because 
I think they should have added a little bit more context and contextualize it better because actually being a Catholic myself, I've looked at it and it doesn't say that you always have to do artificial nutrition, quite the opposite. Actually, one of the popes, uh, Pope John Paul II, actually, uh, at the end of his life with very, very advanced Parkinson's disease, made it very clear there isn't a role and the, and the goal is more comfort. But obviously in some places it is appropriate, in other places it's not. Good. So with that then, over to article number three, and this article was identified by and will be presented by Jean. And one of the now increasing excellent studies coming from Ontario using large population databases. Over to Eugene. Thanks, Jose. So I'm presenting this article by Quash and colleagues from uh, Ottawa entitled Comparison of End of Life Care Between Recent Immigrants and Longstanding Residents in Ontario. This was published recently in uh, JAMA Network Open. So the basic research question they were asking is, is recent immigration status associated with place of care at the end of life compared to long-standing residents. So this was a population-based uh, retrospective cohort study. They looked at administrative data from individuals who died in Ontario between January 2013 and December 2016, and basically divided into two cohorts. So those who came to Canada after 1985 were called the recent immigration cohort, and those who were either born in Canada or came to Canada before 1985 were the long-standing residents. And in these two cohorts, they looked at two main outcomes. The first was place of care in the last 90 days, which could be either acute care, such as ICU, non-ICU, hospital admission, ER visits, or it could be long-term care, home care, etc. That was the first outcome. And the second outcome was location of death. So whether death happened in an in-hospital in or in a community setting. Interestingly, they also did a subgroup analysis of the recent immigration cohort to look at region of origin. So depending on the United Nations regions, whether coming from Western Europe meant something different than coming from Africa region or Southeast Asia region in terms of place of care and end of life. So in terms of the results, a total of 376,000 deceased individuals were identified, out of which 22,000 were recent immigrants. They found that recent immigrants were more younger and more likely to be living in low-income neighborhoods. And in the last 90 days of life, they spent more time in ICU than long-standing residents and less time in long-term care. There was also a higher likelihood of death in acute settings for the recent immigration cohort. So basically, uh, the study concluded that at the end of life, recent immigrants were significantly more likely to receive inpatient and ICU services and to die in uh, acute care settings. And when they did the subgroup analysis by region of origin for the recent immigration cohort, they found that those who had come from Northern and Western Europe were more likely to use long-term care compared to those who came from Africa region or Southeast Asia region. And the latter groups were more likely to die in acute settings. So why I found this article interesting, as a recent immigrant to Canada myself, I'm familiar with uh, some of this literature, which has conclusively shown that this population has uh, more challenges with accessing culturally appropriate care, including at the end of life. What was an interesting part of this study's findings was that the recent immigration cohort actually had a higher likelihood of receiving palliative care. So in spite of that, they still had more acute and aggressive care at the end of life. And so one of the suggestions that the authors made was that we might need more culturally appropriate palliative care 
to address the unique needs of this population. In terms of their limitations, the authors did discuss that there were challenges with uh, capturing palliative care use data. So they might have been underestimated in the data set. They could not account for any care provided in a residential hospice setting. So that data was missing. And obviously, they did not capture kind of individual data on actual preference for end-of-life care among either cohort, whether they wanted to have acute care services or, or die in a hospital versus home, things like that. So these were the kind of limitations, but they have demonstrated that there is a significant difference for recent immigration status in terms of place of care. And they've suggested that further studies should look at region of origin and how that plays a role and how patient preferences play a role in this as well. So uh, with that, I'll open it up to discussion. This article is uh, interesting to me. I mean, with my research in uh, health administrative database, I find this fascinating. A a couple of comments I wanted to make. Uh, One, um, the finding of more part of care in the recent immigration population likely or might be secondary to the fact that part of care continues to be mostly available in hospitals. And so it might be that because they were in hospitals more, they got more part of care. And so it might be the timing of part of care that's more relevant and that perhaps, and you know, my hypothesis would be that they got part of care late um, because they got it the day before they died in hospital. It's a possible explanation. The second point I was going to make is around the culturally appropriate part of care, but just care in general, which you mentioned. And certainly, again, I'm a recent immigrant, according to their definition of 1985 or after. You know, even within my own family, as my parents age, um, having culturally appropriate home care even, uh, even though they're not in the end of life, um, is a challenge for them. And, uh, you know, having people who can speak the language uh, coming in for home care is a challenge. And when that perpetuates and starts off, I can see downstream that they're not going to be hooked into the right care to allow them to stay in the community till the end. Um, and, and so those things are interesting for me. I found this very interesting as well. I was intrigued by why they chose 1985 as the date. Um I'm also an immigrant and I arrived here in 1992, but I've been thinking I'm long in the tooth already. I'm not a recent immigrant. I just found that that interesting. I would have thought... So, Jose, I actually know the reason they chose 1985 is that the IRCC database, Immigration and Refugees and Citizenship Canada database, collects information after 1985. So that they mentioned Ah. that in the article. So that's why they chose that date. But they did recognize that other studies use a more recent definition for a kind of recent immigrant. Got it. You know, I sometimes wonder, since I work in a, in a hospital in, in Brampton, uh, very multicultural, lots of immigrants, recent and very, very recent, that I think there are a lot of nuances behind all of this that needs exploring. Like, you know, we might be making an assumption that, for example, that recent immigrants are ending up in hospital more often and make the assumption that it's because of lack of services when maybe there are other dynamics here. And I think they go into that in the paper, don't they, Ajit? That I think just basically is an area that we need to understand a lot better and not make assumptions. For sure. I think that, that was something they discussed as well, that we need to look at patient preferences, access to care. I was looking at the literature on kind of culturally appropriate palliative care and kind of what that looks like. And, you know, I was looking at this interesting study out of Scotland where they were describing kind of racial barriers, religious barriers, taboos, so cultural taboos about talking mm. about death, lack of awareness about hospice. 
closer to home in Canada, I was looking at culturally appropriate and safe palliative care for rural indigenous populations. And they were describing the role of family and community, the community ownership of services as things that are important as part of a culturally appropriate palliative care. So I think this is an important question for further research as well. Gioni, I think you were going to say something and then you can then move on then with, because uh, I think you're presenting the next one, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. Just a small comment. I think you've already touched on it, Jean, and the article goes into quite a bit of detail. But really an important question to ask is where is the preferred place of death and where, where does death occur? So are we able to support people in having their preferred place of death, which for some populations and cultures might be hospital? I think there's always this understanding, it seems, in, in Canadian culture that home death is the best, but not necessarily for everybody. So just to Put that thought-provoking idea out there. Yeah, so I'm going to do the next paper. This is a paper that uh, Jose and I selected from Palliative Medicine. It was published in September 2021 by Dr. Jessica Ma and her colleagues in North Carolina. So this is on exploring expanded interdisciplinary roles and goals of care conversations in a national goals of care initiative, a qualitative approach. So for background, the United States Veterans Health Administration National Center for Ethics in Healthcare implemented a life-sustaining treatment decisions initiative throughout the Veterans Health Administration National Healthcare System in 2017. This policy encourages goals of care conversations about a patient's treatment and preference for end-of-life wishes in all veterans with serious illnesses. And a key component of the initiative is on expanding the roles of interdisciplinary providers in having goals of care conversations. So the aim of the study was to use organizational role theory, and I'll explain that in a second, to explore medical center experiences with expanding interdisciplinary roles in the implementation of a national goals of care initiative. And they also wanted to identify approaches that enhance implementation uptake within a healthcare system and within medical centers. So for that added context, because I was new to organizational role theory, organizational role theory examines people's positions and expectations in relation to the tasks of their prescribed roles and fit in the organizational level and management. So in this study, they did a qualitative thematic analysis of semi-structured interviews. Participants were initially recruited through purposeful sampling of the local medical center, both champions as well as folks at earlier stages of their implementation. They did snowball sampling to identify further participants and ended up including 31 interdisciplinary providers from 12 geographically diverse medical centers at different phases of their implementation. And what they found and identified through their analysis was that there are five themes related to expanding provider roles in goals of care conversations. So the first was that expanding roles involved organizational culture change. It was influenced by medical center leadership and was supported by provider role readiness. It also was found to be benefited by cross-disciplinary role agreement. And there was a sense that this change in role can really overwhelm providers. The authors concluded that organizational role theory is a helpful framework for exploring interdisciplinary roles and goals of care initiative, and that support and recognition of provider role expansion in goals of care conversations was very important for the adoption of a goals of care initiative. And they identified a number of actionable strategies that they detail in their paper, if you're interested, I encourage you to read the details, that can facilitate role change and potentially strengthen the uptake of such a goals of care initiative at a health system level. So my main takeaway from this is really that expanding interdisciplinary provider roles in goals of care conversations required a significant shift in organizational culture, leadership recognition and involvement, and support for the provider readiness through education and interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary efforts to promote a team approach 
and foster role agreement between those team members and between specialties. So it wasn't just the traditional role of the doctor to discuss goals of care conversations, but that it was everyone's responsibility in advancing the conversation. So why is this article important? Well, I think that there's definitely a, a growing recognition of the need and the improvement in outcomes for patients by having an interdisciplinary team approach to goals of care conversations and involving diverse providers. But we don't yet have a lot of understanding how this can be best expanded in terms of um, the roles uh, and also how it can be implemented at a health system level. I actually found it very interesting to look at all the ways that using this organization role theory could support the system change ideas and give us some really concrete tools and tips that could be applied to other health system initiatives. So in particular, you know, there are observations that leadership is an important facilitator in shaping organizational culture and that the approach that the organization takes to adoption of new initiatives, that effective, involved and diverse leadership increase the acceptance of the culture change and the readiness for role expansion of those interdisciplinary providers through executive support implementation of training resources and fostering collaboration between the providers by clarifying roles and expectations. They also recognized that and addressing that the lack of time, the task burden and staff turnover all contributed to the role expansion efforts and addressing these particular pragmatic factors can increase initiative uptake at an organizational level. They do uh, comment that their study is really focused from the Veterans Health Administration system. And so the generalizability of their findings might be limited. But, you know, I think a strength is that and that they identify themselves that it was through a diversity of centers that varied by location size and various stages of implementation. So lots of food for thought. And they have some really great details about specific roles that leaders can take at the middle management level, executive level, the champion education level and ways, things that we can learn from to apply this to other um, initiatives. So I'd love to hear what the panel thought. This is interesting uh, for me to think about because it parallels uh, for me the early part of care journey that we are trying to uh, implement and culture change across organizations where we are telling people everybody has a role in early part of care and a palliative approach to care. I think the challenges are similar with our clarifying roles and expectations. And I wonder also whether I worry sometimes that diffusing responsibilities means people have a opportunity to say, well, you know, that other person is probably more suited, they should do it. <laughs> and whether there's a risk of not everybody therefore doing it, like it, it'll, it might get passed over to somebody else. And I wonder and worry about that. But again, maybe these case examples prove me wrong. I think they did address that in their experiences, at least, that really having that clear role uh, delineation where it was recognized there are overlapping responsibilities and shared decision-making at a, at, in a team approach so that the social workers and chaplains, for example, would agree who is going to take the lead and responsibility for this part of the conversation, perhaps because of rapport or the, you know, what particular aspect they're supporting the patient with. But that sense of really coming together as a team and recognizing that it's okay to have overlapping responsibilities, but still needing to delineate who is going to be responsible for this piece of it. Leone, do you know if they are monitoring progress? And I, I, I presume they did a baseline and will be monitoring it. I, I really look forward to seeing the results of this. And yeah, I, I haven't had a chance to look at that, but I am also very intrigued. I think there's actually lots of learnings to take away from this study. So yeah, I'm also intrigued. Angeron makes a really good point. I must say, when I read the article, that point Angeron, as you just said, I didn't really cross my mind, but you're absolutely correct. I mean, I'm sure all of us often get 
asked to, uh, in consult to see patients where the attending team or the attending clinician or the attending team have not had those discussions and it's up to us to initiate those discussions. Thank you. Fascinating paper. I'm sure everyone will, will agree. So in the interest of time, so we're going to move now to the last one and I'm going to try and go through it quite as quickly as I can. So I'll try to summarize it. So there's enough time for us to quickly list the honorable mentions and then open up for some discussions. Um, I see some questions have been coming through. So Article 5 is a, what I found a fascinating study, um, a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized trial looking at the role of metazapine in addressing cancer-associated anorexia and cachexia. And I found this interesting because, as we all know, cachexia, so in other words, the ongoing loss of skeletal mass, you know, with or without a loss of fat mass um, is a very common complication of advanced cancer. And we also see it in many of the other end-stage um, organ diseases, advanced heart disease, lung disease, renal disease, and dementia as well. And it negatively impacts quality of life and actually is the cause of, of death itself. Metazapine is a, is a noradrenergic and specific serotonergic antidepressant that has been used in the management of depression and anxiety in cancer patients. And it was noted that it uh, seemed to stimulate appetite and cause weight gain when it was used as an antidepressant in the general population. And so that generated a lot of interest in the advanced disease arena to see if that could be helpful to improve appetite and address the cachexia. And I must say that I have sometimes prescribed it uh, with that in mind. So I found this excellent study from colleagues in Cairo, Egypt, beautifully undertaken, beautifully written study. And so the objective was specifically to assess efficacy and tolerability of metazapine in cancer-associated anorexia and cachexia. The study, which, as I said, was double-blind, placebo-controlled, and was randomized, included 120 patients with incurable solid tumors with anorexia. And anorexia was identified on a numerical scale, anything equal to greater than four, the higher the number, the worse the appetite is. And cachexia, cachexia was defined more than 5% body weight loss over six months, or more than 2% plus body mass index less than uh, 20. And so th that's a common criteria that's used to, uh, to identify cachexia in a patient. And then with respect to depression, uh, the score, anything equal to, um, so they, they looked at patients that had low rates of depression, and so depression score of less than or equal to three on a zero to six scale, where six was extreme feelings of depression. Patients who received the active drug received metazapine, metazapine 15 milligrams daily at night for eight weeks, and then the others received a placebo. And the primary endpoint was change in appetite from baseline to day 28. And then they looked at other outcomes, which included quality of life, parameters, fatigue, depressive symptoms, body weight, lean body mass, the hand grip strength, they looked as well at inflammatory markers and adverse events and survival. And just very quickly, 48 of the patients in the metazapine, in other words, 80% of the metazapine arm and 87% in the placebo were accessible uh, for the primary endpoint. So that was at 28 days. So obviously, some people fell, uh, fell out of the study during those 28 days. The appetite score increased significantly with metazapan as well as with the placebo. And the increase in appetite score did not differ significantly between the two arms in the PER protocol. And they also did an intention to treat analysis. And again, there was no difference there. 
they concluded that mirtazapine 15 milligrams at night for 28 days is no better than placebo in improving the appetite of incurable solid tumor patients with cancer-associated anorexia and cachexia. In their final conclusion, they actually wrote there that although the outcome of this trial is against the use of metazapine as an appetite stimulant in patients with cancer-related cachexia, it supports its use for depression and insomnia in advanced cancer patients because they found benefits to that. Although some of the placebo patients also had benefits, but there was significantly more benefits, the way I understand it, in the metazapine arm. So, Interesting article, and I think I'll open it up for a quick uh, discussion before we do the honorable mentions and have a few minutes left to address some of the questions coming in. Uh, Jose, I can add two quick thoughts. One thing I found interesting in their protocol for the mirtazapine, I don't know if they went up on the dose. They started at 15, and I think they kept it at 15. They didn't escalate the dose. So I thought that was something in clinical practice, we might have actually gone up on the dose to see if there was effect. The second point, I think this reminded me of that study about delirium where they they looked at haloperidol versus risperidone versus placebo, and they found that placebo was actually better to treat delirium in palliative care settings. It reminded me of that in the context that we don't have too many better medications to treat low appetite. So even though this is significant, I suspect we will continue to use it because just like we continue to use Haldol for delirium, in spite of knowing placebo might be better. That's such a great point. We could spend a whole journal watch one day on that particular study, that Australian study with Risperidone. Was, From Miragar, yeah. Yeah, very good point. When you increase in your practice, when you're going up with the dose of metazapine, do you find somnolence becomes a problem? Yes, it's variable. I mean, for some patients, I've found that an increase in dose helps with their appetite. But for sure, for some patients, I've also had to go down on the dose because of, you know, daytime drowsiness and things. I was just going to say that I, the somnolent side effects of mirtazapine seem to be more effective at the lower doses. So going up above 15 can usually get rid of that side effect. But that's just my clinical experience. Very good. Thank you. Excellent. Good. So let's go on to the honorable mentions, and then hopefully there'll be a few minutes to address some of the questions. So good list of seven honorable mentions. There's a fascinating paper on hope in end-of-life cancer patients, a cross-sectional analysis, and that was in the journal Palliative and Supportive Care. A fascinating paper on the role and activities of board-certified chaplains in advanced care planning, and that's aligns very nicely with the discussion about culture and, and who initiates these discussions. There's this paper on understanding the patient experience of the PRN medications, these as-needed medications, on the topic of palliative sedation and sedation, in this case, more for procedural sedation, intranasal uh, dexmeditomidine, which is actually also a medication that we see in the literature described for use in palliative sedation. Interesting one on what affects adoption of specialty palliative care intensive care units. And those of you who are interested in integrating palliative care in different services, really take a look at that. It, it describes it very nicely and actually describes almost sort of a journey that one goes through to achieve full integration and different models. There's a fascinating paper on informal caregivers of older Muslims diagnosed with cancer, a portrait of depression, social support and faith. And that was also in palliative and supportive care. And then in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management, a paper towards the end of last year on recommendations for prevention of medication diversion and misuse in hospice care. Uh, very topical, I think, given the whole substance use disorder that we that we see. So those are the honorable mentions. You'll you'll get their links and the links to the papers discussed today on the website. 
And we've got a few minutes to end off with, and one minute or two minutes. And just very quickly, I see some questions coming in from Beatrice Kainia. I'm not surprised, though, that appetite stimulation and weight gain at Kekexa stage did not happen in spite of metazapine. I believe at that stage, the situation is reversible. And indeed, that's a whole challenge, right? Once Kekexa is well established, I'm not aware of any interventions can really, really reverse it. What is interesting, and I think the next generation of palliative care clinicians, I think, will be looking at being proactive and the emergence of palliative rehabilitation clinics where we're doing some interventions like exercising and nutritional, optimizing nutritional intake, protein intake, appetite stimulation as well, early before Kekexa steps in. Let me see what else. Can any of you, gentlemen, look and want to answer any of those Questions coming in. Uh, there's a question about uh, back to the original pipe of sedation study. If a if a patient with delirium prior to the midazolam, would they continue with the neuroleptic basically to treat the delirium? And the answer is yes. They would continue with any pre-existing control for delirium. If they were on opioids for pain, those would have been continued. See Julie Lachance from uh, from Health Canada uh, highlights the competency framework that the owner mentioned. In fact, just a few days ago, I referred to it because I think that. Often people don't understand that there are competencies as well related to doing part of care at a specialist level, and but there are also important competencies that one can acquire to provide primary level part of care. And the more healthcare professionals across the country who are caring for people with serious illnesses who can have those core competencies, the higher I believe access to part of care is going to be. Okay, and then just very lastly, I'll look at the Q and A. I think those were the main ones. I, I apologize if we didn't uh, answer to all of them, but the time's up. So I need to keep moving here. So in wrap up, remember the article list will be on the website at www.echopalliative.com. And very shortly, we hope within the next month or two, you'll see the podcast as well. So when you do get it, uh, please spread it to colleagues, spread the word around. The more people can join, the better. And who knows, maybe in the future it can become monthly, if not even more often than that. We thank you. And, and a very big thank you call out to our faculty who are who, who monitor and watch the journals. And uh, they are Dr. Vekcha Aluri, Dr. Umeri Saeed, Dr. Karim Manji, Dr. Martin Chasen, Dr. Alan Tanaguchi, Dr. Jesse Solomon, Dr. Jordan Lafreniere, and Dr. Andre Mulman, as well as Christopher Klinger from McMaster University and from Queen's University, our own very own Dr. Leonie Burks, Anna Wilk, Julianne Bagg, Jean Matthews, Adrian Selby, and Aingaran Sinaraja. Both of them were guests today. We hope you enjoyed this inaugural episode. Goodbye and stay safe and hopefully see you all very soon. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm James O'Hearn, and I hope you found it both enjoyable and informative. This podcast is a collaboration between Pallium Canada and the Divisions of Palliative Care at Queen's University and McMaster University. It is a part of the Palliative Care Echo Project, which aims to support continuous professional development among healthcare providers across Canada who care for patients with life-limiting illness. If you'd like to learn more about the Journal Watch program or our other Palliative Care Echo Project activities, feel free to email us at echo at pallium.ca. That's echo at p-a-l-l-i-u-m dot C-A. Or visit our website at www.echopalliative.com. The Palliative Care Echo Project 
is supported by financial contributions from Health Canada. However, the views expressed in today's episode do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. The music for this episode is Dazed by Airtone. Copyright 2012, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 license. You can find Airtone's music at dig.ccmixter.org. Today's episode was produced by Holly Finn. See you soon. Thank you.